I don't know if you've played that game, have you, where you choose three, five, let's, let's say three, dinner party guests, alive or dead. You can invite anyone to come to your table and you can sit with them and have an evening conversing with them, asking them any question you want. If you haven't done it, why don't you just have a little think as I'm speaking. Who is it? If you could ask anyone, living or dead, who would it be? What's that, Shane? You'd invite me. Thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) I don't know who you'd invite, but it's it's an interesting question. Even beyond who you might invite, how would you begin to relate? How would you begin to spark conversation among you. You would want, if you're anything like me, with one of your heroes or three of your heroes around the table, you would be particularly desperate to put your best foot forward, wouldn't you? That's what you'd want to do. You'd want to impress them. You'd want to bring out your best anecdotes, drop some of your best chat. Maybe you'd want to establish connection. You know there are There are only seven degrees of separation, are there not, between every human person? So you might want to establish some people that you both know. Maybe that would be possible. Or you could do what I like to do. My favorite strategy for influencing people and winning friends, you might like to name drop. You'll never guess who I know. Once, when I was chatting to uh, such and such, maybe you'd want to do that to... Connect with (laughs) that person. A surefire way of establishing credibility or making yourself look like an idiot, one of the two. This Lent, we are are in Lent, by the way. It just happened on Wednesday. But we're going to be looking at the cross of Jesus. In fact, not just at the cross, but we're going to be looking through the cross. Our intent is to stare through the cross. And the purpose of doing this is that we might encounter Jesus Christ in a new way. And so we're still aiming for renewal. Because whenever we encounter Jesus, what we are doing is to encounter the one who is able to renew every part of us. But we want to do that as we look at the cross. And what's fascinating as we look at the cross is we encounter a God who is identified, who chooses to be identified amongst the worst of us, the least of what the world has to offer, a God who is absolutely, in his essence, not a name dropper, a social climber, but one who descends to the depths. And even as we begin to look and ask the question, why would it be that God reveal himself in the cross and on the cross, why would it be that God would be uh, one who does that? We're going to ask that question by taking a journey to the church in Corinth. And that's the the church that Paul is writing to in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And Colin's already read uh, the first chapter of 1st Corinthians too, hasn't he? And and if you were following closely, if you weren't as I was, mesmerized by the beauty of his dulcet tones, I'm thinking, where I heard that voice before? (laughs) You may be caught a little bit of the context of what's happening in 1 Corinthians, a little bit of the story into which the Apostle Paul is speaking. And the story in 1 Corinthians is a story fundamentally of division. 
It's a church which is not really all that old, which has not been together really for all that long, that's already beginning to be divided and torn apart. And the fundamental reason, or one of the fundamental reasons they've become a divided community is they've been uh, distracted, they've become a cult of celebrity. They're just a bunch of name droppers. <laughs> Who baptized you? <laughs> Stephanus, uh, uh, no, who was it? Apollos, Apollos baptized me, or Cephas, or Cephas baptized me, and oh, I was baptized by Paul. I love it, and, and we all laughed, didn't we, as uh, Colin shared that. Paul couldn't even remember who he'd baptized. Isn't that great? <laughs> Let's just read that again because it's jokes. I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say you were baptized by me. Brackets. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. Anyway, this is fantastic. So they've become name droppers. They've become distracted by the cult of celebrity. They want to align themselves with different human voices. That's what they're wanting to do. And it's all a power play. And alongside that, they're also seeking power through what they deem to be powerful spiritual gifts. They're particularly infatuated with the gifts. And among all the gifts, the the gift of tongues, because they see it as an angelic language through which they're participating in the most powerful expression of spirituality. And all of this name dropping or gift dropping, it all seeks to divide and and distract from the true message of the gospel. They've forgotten the basic Christian story. And they've begun to live in a worldly story, a worldly narrative. And it's causing pain and heartache. And Paul writes to the church to get them back on script. To get them back on message. How does he do that? With a relentless focus on Jesus. But not just on Jesus. Interestingly, in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul doesn't focus on the life of Jesus. He doesn't say who preached that message about the kingdom. Refer back to Matthew 6. No, Paul refers specifically to the cross of Jesus. They'd forgotten about the cross of Jesus. They had become offended by the cross of Jesus. For them, it had become unpalatable, and so they focused on a message which had better play with the focus groups in Corinth. It was more of a, a seeker message. That's what we need. A seeker-sensitive Christianity. Let's talk to them about how they can have their best life now. You heard one of those messages? Paul says that's the message that's causing the pain. And so, in the midst of the offense at the message of the cross, Paul zeroes in on the cross. I love it. The very thing they didn't want to look at, he makes them look at it again. But why would they have been offended? Why so distracted? Why did they miss the main point? Well, Paul's letter is about reminding them of this main thing, which is Jesus and the message of the cross. His position is that if we want to understand how God is at work in the world, 
First and last, we need to look at the death of Jesus on a cross 2,000 years ago. And here's what he says in verse 17 to 19. After the baptism bit. For Christ has not sent me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence. The very things they wanted the most from their leaders. Leaders like Apollos. Not with wisdom and eloquence, eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. He wants to focus on the cross because that is where the power is at. Here's how Eugene Peterson paraphrases it in the message. God didn't send me out to collect a following for myself. By the way, beware of leaders who seek to do that. But to preach the message of what he has done, collecting a following for him. And he didn't send me to do it with a lot of fancy rhetoric of my own. Lest the powerful action at the center, Christ on the cross, be trivialized into mere words. Beautiful emphasis, a rigorous emphasis on the cross. That is the Christian message. That is the apostolic strategy. Paul's strategy to this divided community is to focus them back in on the message of Jesus. Why had they turned away? Why is it that they turned away? Well, listen to this, verses 22 through 25. Jews demand signs. Greeks Look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. This is one of my favorite passages of scripture in the whole Bible. I love it. Why have they become distracted? Well, they've become distracted, easy for me to say, distracted because Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom. Somehow in the middle of their Christian lives, the cross just didn't Connect, it didn't seem to work. Why? Because it was foolish to them. It was a stumbling block to them. Because it was so countercultural and offensive. It offended their sensibilities, their expectations, their demands, and their desires. It was at cross purposes with the story the culture was telling. And Paul uses two words particularly to, to describe this. The first is foolishness. The second is a stumbling block. Let's look at that. Foolishness. Why is the cross foolishness to them? Well, the Greek culture of the day, the culture that Paul is uh, speaking into, the, the culture that was primary in Corinth was a culture which valued wisdom, philosophy, rhetoric, Eloquence, fancy ways of speaking. That was, the, that was what carried weight. That had cachet. And the Christian message of a crucified Jesus didn't play well. As I said, it didn't land in the focus groups where intellect was primary. Well, why not? Well, let's just do some recap. The, 
Christians preach that Jesus of Nazareth, a Jewish preacher born on the fringes of the Roman Empire some 2,000 years and a little bit more ago, was in fact the living God made flesh. That the God who created the the moon and the stars, the the whole of the universe, the the tidal system and, and your cells and who came up with the idea of DNA and all of the other stuff, that he became a baby with a human body. And then this Jesus, as he grew up, began a a ministry of preaching and teaching and healing. And he spoke about the kingdom of God, the rule and the reign of God. And he embodied that by changing lives. And he initiated a community of the kingdom. He called it his group of disciples. Now, he became immensely popular because of all the good things he was doing and the messages he was preaching. And at the height of his popularity, he was opposed by the Jewish rulers. And they used the the Roman state to crush him. He had a show trial and he he was crushed. And ultimately, he was killed. He was crucified on a Roman cross as a common criminal. He died a slave's death. Not just any death. A particularly gruesome death. And it's interesting that the Gospels themselves don't get into the detail of the death. For them, it didn't seem to be the most important thing. And that may be because everybody who received the Gospels knew about crucifixion. They'd seen crucifixion. That's possibly the answer. And so for us, we need to do a bit of recap. And I hope this isn't going to be unnecessarily gratuitous or gruesome. I'm not try- this isn't my version of a passion of the Christ. But I think it is important for us to capture just how horrific, how abhorrent the death of Jesus, the death of anyone who was crucified would be. It would begin with scourging uh, a whip, a leather whip, in which uh, there would be pieces, fragments of bone or metal embedded, would be used to whip uh, the person who's being crucified, who at this point would be leaning over so that their back and buttocks would be exposed and they'd be completely naked. Now they'd be whipped uh, progressively and over a period of time so that the, uh, the skin uh, would be removed and ultimately the, the whipping would begin to hit uh, the, mu- the muscle. Skeletal muscle would be exposed. At the end of this process, At the end of this process, often the victim would be so weak they'd be unable to walk. Jesus was clearly in this place because somebody else had to carry his cross for him. We see that in the Gospels. Uh, But carry their cross they would have to. And they would be, at this point, uh, subjected to corporate ridicule. People would gather around and spit and shout and call names. So this is, the, not, this is now the, not just the physical torture, this is the psychological torture of crucifixion. And the victim would be ultimately led the victim would ultimately be led to the place where they'd be crucified. And they'd be attached to a crossbeam with nails going through the wrists and then nails on the feet, going through the feet, uh, just above the ankles, into a cross. At this point, they'd be elevated to the vertical. Now, this, it was, when you were being crucified, it was physically impossible to inhale. 
because of the position of your body. So in order to take a breath, you would have to lift yourself up by your own exertion, either by pushing from your feet, which had been impaled, or by pulling yourself up via the wrists, all just to take a breath. What, you, what killed people was either exposure, if they were strong enough, or um, suffocation. You were fighting for every breath. You eventually became your own executioner. It is not a surprise then that one commentator said this about crucifixion. Crucifixion as a means of execution in the Roman Empire had as its express purpose the elimination of victims from consideration as members of the human race. The purpose of it was to dehumanize. That's what it was aiming to do. It was seeking to, uh, it was only ever used with slaves, typically. Whatever else this was, you can see how this wouldn't have been seen as a valid way for a king to die. In a culture that valued philosophy and intellect and logic and rationality, how could God reveal himself like this? It's irrational. It is fundamentally irrational. No other God reveals himself like this. And so one scholar writes, Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central focus the suffering and degradation of its God. The crucifixion is so familiar to us and so moving that it's hard for us to realize how unusual it is as an image of God. Isn't that true? We're so used to seeing it on our tattoos or our jewelry, even on, as Lois was saying the other week in our intercessions, on our school badges, that we just miss how offensive, how, how insane, how irrational, how foolish it was for God to reveal himself in this way. And for the Jews, that was the Gentiles, but for the Jews it was also a non-starter, a stumbling block. In fact, the word stumbling block in the Greek is scandalon. It's the word from which we get the word scandal. It was scandalous for the Jews that God would reveal himself in this way. The Jewish law in Deuteronomy 21, 23 speaks about a prohibition on somebody being hung from a tree. Cursed is the one who is hung from a tree, it says in the law. So for the Jews, no, understand this, no other way of dying was cursed. Only this way. And so if you died in this way, you were under God's curse. That was the Jewish understanding of death on the cross. And as Paul says, your Jews demand signs. They want to see God show up in power. Who doesn't, eh? Isn't that what we want? We want a God who's acting powerfully among us. We want the God of the Exodus. That's the kind of God we want. That's the kind of God who smites the Egyptian, who comes against their ten gods with ten greater signs and powerful movements, who ultimately releases them through the sea, who parts the seas. That's the God we like to sing about on a Sunday morning. Jews demand signs. There's no place in the Jewish conception of God for a God who is revealed on the cross. Where does the God of the cross fit in the Gentile mind, in the Jewish mind? No, to the irreligious and to the religious, the cross is a profound disappointment. 
one of my favorite preachers, who also happens to have the best name of any preacher I've ever heard, Fleming Rutledge. She says this, the cross is offensive to everyone, religious people and secular people alike. All human achievement, especially religious achievement, is called into question by the godlessness of Jesus' death. If God in three persons is most fully revealed to us by the Son's accursed death outside the community of the godly, that means a rethinking of what is usually called religion. This ain't religion. Whatever else is revealed on the cross, this is not religion. And nor is it by any worldly sign wisdom. It is foolishness by the world's signs. And we've got to recapture the strangeness of the cross if we're going to be intoxicated again by the beauty and the wisdom and the power and the blessedness of the cross. Now the reason the Corinthian Christians had rejected the message was that it flew in the face of every single cultural expectation then just as it does now. The cross is the great reversal. Listen to what Paul says, verse 23. Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, both the religious and the irreligious, to those who God has called, Christ, the power of God, And the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. In this place, in the cross and on the cross of Jesus, that is where God reveals true wisdom. That is where God reveals true power. It is an unlikely message. It's an unlikely place for God to reveal himself. As the only wise God, as the all-powerful God, and yet that is just the place Christians believe that he does reveal himself in that way. It is on that place, as we will see in the weeks to come, that he judges evil. It is, it is on that place that he reveals his mercy and his love for all people. It is on that place that he disarms the powers and the principalities that are arranged against every good force in the universe. It is on that place that he is seen as the universal victor. It is on that place that he makes everything new. It is, it is on that place and in that place that he atones for sin. There and there alone, God deals with all of that. It is on that place, on the cross of Christ, that he justifies us. And that it is in and through that place that we are sanctified, washed clean, remade. And it's through the cross that he's remaking creation. It's good news, folks. It's good news. It's strange news. It's strange news, and it is good news. Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. God's wisdom, God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. God's weakness is stronger than human strength. It's so good. It's so good. So what? 
What does it mean for us? What does it mean that God is revealed in this way? What does it mean for us, for you and me today? What if this is a pattern for God's activity in our lives? What if God's activity in your life, what about, what, what if God's desire and design for your life is not to make you, in a worldly sense, stronger and stronger and stronger? What about if God's vision for you in a worldly sense is not to make you more and more impressive, more and more comfortable, safer and safer and safer? What if God doesn't want you to cocoon, doesn't want to cocoon you so that you would be untouchable? What about if God is actually calling you to take more and more risks to, to, for you to enter into adventure with him. What about if God is actually, desi- his design for you is to make you weaker? More vulnerable, more exposed, less safe, less comfortable. Are you squirming yet? More dependent more surrendered. That is God's vision for us. That is. This is how God saves us. What what if God is not interested at all? One bit, even slightly, a tiny little bit in establishing your agenda for your life. Completely disinterested. But really, really, really committed To establishing his kingdom in your life. As you take up your cross daily. It's a complete reversal from the story that culture is telling. He's not actually interested in what you think your identity is. Your life is, you have died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. We take off the old self. And we put on the new self, which is Christ. We're crucified with Christ. That's the gospel. And so all the stuff about asserting rights, which is so prevalent in our culture, whenever we're doing that, we're not thinking as Christians think. We lay down our rights for the benefit and the betterment of others and for the worship of Jesus. This is how God works in the world. It's how he wants to work in our life. How does he want to work through us and beyond us? What if the cross is the way that God works in the world? It is. Right on. What about if he is at work amongst the foolish and in the midst of the foolishness? Not necessarily amongst the applauded. But amongst the despised, the weak, what about even now he is using the weak things of the world to shame the strong things? Would this cause us to think differently about what we value? Who we value? Would it cause us to think differently 
about our intention for our lives, how God might want to use our lives for the benefit of the world. How would we think, if this was how God worked in the world, how would we think differently about our wounds, our weaknesses, our failures? How would we think differently about difficult people? You know the person in your life who is a constant frustration? And if you could, you would banish them. You would cancel them. Don't look to your spouse. What about the unloved person? The irritating person. What if God is working through them? Just this week, Amy and I met with a member of our team who went away. I haven't actually asked her permission to share this, so I won't share her name, but who went away on a prayer retreat as part of our group. I've got an okay. As part of a, a silent retreat. And God spoke to her in the midst of that and gave her a prophetic word for us as a church. But I think it's such a beautiful cross-shaped vision for Christian life. Listen to this. Keep opening up the church. Open more and more of it to the dirtiest Nottingham has to offer. I am not scared. Are you? Then know your God. I am going to make all of them clean. I want their mess. I want them to bring it all and leave it at the foot of my cross. Do you know how strong I am? Can you even comprehend how much I love this city? Don't bring me the ones who are easy to fix. Bring me the worst, the most despairing, horrible, rude, downtrodden, disillusioned, and ugly you can find. And I will show them my kindness. I will show the enemy who is in charge. He will tremble at my gentleness and the depth of my love. I will make him weak. Be obedient to me, and I will change the stench of Nottingham. I will alter the atmosphere around you. I will bring nothing but light to your streets. Where will he do this? How will he do this? He'll do it through the cross. He'll reveal his kindness through the cross. Where will the ugly, the despairing come? Where will the addicts come to find mercy? They'll come to the cross. And there they will find mercy. And there they will find salvation. And there they will find healing. And there they will find transformative power. There and there alone. Because the wisdom of God is wiser than human wisdom. The foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is more powerful than human strength. As we begin this series, In the Cross... And as we think about how we like to identify ourselves among others, let us make a decision to identify ourselves at the cross, to be identified with this story once and for all.